Let's pray together. Father, you are indeed worthy, and Christ is worthy. And even saying things like, you must have in all things the first place. Lord, we wish we could say it better. We wish we could say it with more, more appropriate feeling. We pray that you would help us to continue to worship now as we consider what your word says about the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Father, that the effect that this passage would have upon us would be that we would feel exactly what this text says, that we would consider ourselves free will offerings for the sake of King Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would cause that to influence the way that we think about how we relate to other people, influence the way that we think about who we are, cause it to transform our marriages, cause it to transform our working relationships. Lord, make us feel what John the Baptist articulated when he said he must increase and we must decrease. Cause it to be real, we ask. For Christ's sake, amen. <clears throat> I think this uh, introduction is about to be John Watson's favorite. Uh, in The Return of the King, J.R.R. Tolkien's epic saga, David Burchard likes this too, in The Return of the King, uh, there's a point in this story when this man, Faramir, who's the son of the steward of Gondor, has uh, been injured and he is near death. And as they take this, this man, Faramir, this mighty warrior who has come under the sway of the black breath uh, that comes from these Nazgul, these awful, I'm sure you've seen the movies, these awful winged riders, uh, Faramir has fallen uh, near death, and they take him into the houses of healing, and there's this rumor that begins to circulate that stems from this woman who, who's considered to be something like a teller of old wives' tales. So they don't take her very seriously. But she says, when they bring Faramir in, she says, alas, if he should die, would that there were kings in Gondor, as there were once upon a time, they say. For it is said in old lore, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so the rightful king could ever be known. So she's communicating this, this, this legend. And then as, as the story goes on and they, they develop um, how uh, Faramir is suffering, uh, Tolkien begins to relate how the, the word is going around about what this old woman, Yoreth, had said. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. And then eventually, um, the Lord Aragorn, who is the rightful king, he comes into the city and he's cloaked. He's, he's, he's undetected. They don't know who he is. But someone says the words, shall we not send now for the Lord Aragorn? And the cloaked man spoke and said, he is come. 
So Aragorn has entered the city, and then he begins to ask for this one particular uh, herb. Do you say it herb? My kids always make fun of me because I say the opposite. Anyway, he, he begins to ask for this herb called king's foil, and eventually they, they bring the king's foil, and Aragorn says what has happened to Faramir. Uh, he says that he's suffering from weariness, grief for his father's mood, and a wound, and overall, the black breath, because he had come close under the shadow of these, these Nazgul, these riders. And then, and then the rhyme, or the poem, is repeated. When the black breath blows, and death's shadow grows, and all lights pass, come Athalas, come Athalas, life to the dying in the king's hand lying. So you've got darkness, the shadow of death, but then a healing king who comes bringing light. I would invite you to open in your copy of the Bible this morning to Psalm 110. And if you don't have a copy of the Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you're welcome to take that one with you. I would invite you to open to Psalm 110. And as we approach Psalm 110, let me just briefly uh, remind you of what we've seen the last few Sundays when we've been in the Psalms. Uh, several weeks ago, we were in Psalm 106, the last psalm in book, book four. Uh, the psalms are divided into these five books. And um, we, we've, we've noted, as we've made our way over the last couple of years through the psalms, how the first 41 psalms, they have these superscriptions that tie those psalms to the life of the historical David. But then after Psalm 41, you don't see another psalm with historical information that you can locate in David's life. Uh, once you get into Psalm, I'm sorry, that's after Psalm 72. Sorry, the first two books, they track with the life of David. And then once you get to Psalm 73, you're not going to find another superscription that will tie you to some episode in David's life. What you get instead is the sons of David down to Psalm 89, which looks like the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the Davidic line of kings. And then at the end of Psalm 106, the last Psalm in book four, it sounds like the people are in exile. And they, they cry out in Psalm 106, 47, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. And then Psalm 107 opens, and it sounds like the redemption has happened. It sounds like the, the new exodus and the return from exile has finally come to pass. So look at 107.2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands. So it sounds like the great redemption, the future redemption has happened. And this psalm, I think, was written before it had happened. So it was written in expectation of that future redemption. And then last week, we looked at Psalm 108. And we saw that Psalm 108 is, is, is composed of two earlier psalms, Psalms 57 and 60. And I propose that what's happening here is, uh, I, th I mean, it's, it's attributed to David. So I think David has taken parts of two psalms from earlier in his life and projected them into the future as though his, the, the future descendant from his line, the future king, is going to pray what he prayed because the future king is going to have similar experiences to what he went through. And then Psalm 109 is this imprecatory prayer against the future enemy. Uh, so again, the logic goes like this. David had enemies. There were people that betrayed David. And so David is expecting the future king from his line to have enemies. And so he's projecting a prayer like the ones that he prayed into the future for his descendant to pray. 
And then we come to Psalm 110. And in this psalm, you have the triumph of the future king from David's line. And I, I contend that what I just said about this psalm is the way that the, the authors of the New Testament read this psalm because they quote Psalm 110 more than any other psalm in the book. They quote Psalm 110 so much because they understand it to be about the expected king from the line of David. In this psalm, uh, David is going to allude to something that happened in Genesis 14 with Melchizedek that we read about earlier in the service. And I'm telling you that because there is something astonishing going on in this psalm, something that is jaw-droppingly awesome going on in this psalm. And, and so let me just briefly lay it out for you. Moses wrote about this guy named Melchizedek for very important reasons, because he was both a king and a priest. And when we get to it, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this, but he was a king and a priest, just like Adam had been a king and a priest in the garden. And I think that Moses wrote about Abraham's interaction with Melchizedek because he saw it as having significance for the future, particularly in light of the fact that Moses also wrote about priests from the line of Levi, right? Moses wrote not only Genesis, but also Exodus. So I think Moses is conscious that this guy Melchizedek is significant for things that are going to happen in the future. And this guy Melchizedek is connected to Abraham. We'll get more about this as we continue. Then David comes along. David, I submit to you, understands what Moses is doing in Genesis 14. Understands the significance of it and receives revelation that clarifies what's going on Revelation that's embedded here in Psalm 110. And then you get to Jesus, and Jesus puts the pieces together. And we've read about some of it this morning, right? Matthew 22. Who is the Christ? Is he the son of David? Well, then how, can, how then can David call him Lord? And, and it's like he's tantalizing his opponents with this. And at the same time, delighting the crowds with these questions. But David is putting, um, Jesus, sorry, Jesus is putting the pieces together. This bit about Melchizedek. David picking this up in Psalm 110. Jesus then says to the high priest, this was our call to worship this morning, tell us if you are the Christ. And he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What Jesus does there is he puts Psalm 110, sit at my right hand, right next to Daniel 7:13. I saw the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus takes these two statements about the future king and he puts them together as he identifies himself. And then Peter in Acts, listen to this trajectory. Moses, David, Jesus, and then Peter, in, and then Luke who writes Acts, and then the author of Hebrews. This thing goes across the whole Bible. The biblical authors are interpreting what Moses revealed about Melchizedek and developing it. So in this psalm, David is going to recount the announcement that the Lord made to David's Lord. So look at Psalm 110. Look at the superscription, a psalm of David. Okay, David wrote this. Then the next words. The Lord, and you'll notice how the R is a capital R and the D is a capital D, but it's smaller. That's referring to Yahweh, the God of the, the, God of the Bible. Okay, so we could say Yahweh says to my Lord. Now, who's David's Lord? Well, Jesus explains, this is the future king from David's line. David is telling us what God said to the future king from David's line. 
Now, before we go further into the psalm, I just want to observe that we've got a statement from the, from the Lord in verse, four, verse 1, and then David's going to say some things in response to that in verses 2 and 3, and then we've got another statement from the Lord in verse 4, and then David's going to say some things in response to that in verses 5 through 7. So this psalm kind of falls into two parts. The first part is this first statement that, that God makes to David's Lord, the future king from his line. And then the second part is a, a second statement that God makes to that future king from David's line. Let's look at the first one together here. David recounts in verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, and then this is what God said to David's descendant, Sit at my right hand. Let's think about the word sit for a second. You remember earlier in the Psalms, Psalm 2? Uh, the question was asked, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? Do you remember what it says right after that? The one who sits in the heavens laughs and scoffs at them, and then he will answer them in his fury. Now, the one who sits in, heavens, in the heavens is saying to the future king from David's line, sit at my right hand. Now, if, if you're David, I think this is pretty puzzling. How is it that the future king from my line is going to sit at the right hand? Now, he might have some thoughts about this. He might say, well, perhaps what's going to happen, here's a proposal, is my son Solomon is going to build a temple, and then he's going to somehow connect the temple to his own palace, which Solomon actually did, and there's going to be some sort of connection between the throne of the king from David's line in the palace and where God is enthroned in the Holy of Holies. Maybe that's the way we're thinking about this. But as you continue through the Bible, what you learn from Peter, if you want to stick a finger here in Psalm 110 and look over at Acts chapter 2, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, after the resurrection, says in verse 34, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is what Peter is saying. Peter is saying, after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. Then he taught his disciples for 40 days. And then Jesus ascended into the heavens. And Peter is now quoting Psalm 110 there and saying, Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And this is also the way the author of Hebrews is going to interpret this. So David might have had some suspicions, but now we know, thanks to further revelation, don't we? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Um, notice uh, 110.1, sit at my right hand. Look at the end of 109. Talking, uh, Psalm 109, verse 31. The Lord stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. So you've got the needy one, and I think uh, in the context of Psalm 109, that's the future king from David's line. And the Lord is standing at his right hand. That reminds us also, doesn't it, of Psalm 16? right? Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So the Lord is at the right hand of the Messiah. And then look at Psalm 110 verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. When the Messiah goes out to battle, the Lord is at his right hand. But then the Lord is also saying to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. So there's this right hand thing going on between the two of them, isn't there? Uh, when the king goes out to battle or when the king is in need, the Lord is at his right hand. And after the king's conquest, he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let me just remind you of things that we've seen earlier in the book of Psalms. Remember Psalm 8? I think this is significant. In other words, I think uh, this was intended by David, author of Psalms 8 and 110, and then picked up by the author of Hebrews, Psalm 8. You have put all things under his feet, like it's done, right? But now, now David is saying, sit at my right hand until I put all things under your feet. What's going on there? Well, I think that Psalm 8 is talking about Adam's role as the ruler of all creation. And then uh, because of sin, Adam no longer rules over all, man no longer rules over all creation, but the Messiah, the king from David's line is going to restore, he's going to make all things right. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Look at Psalm 108 verse 13. If you've If your Bible is like mine, this is on the same page. With God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. The foes are treaded down. I think there's a a, a development here of Genesis 3.15. He will bruise your head. You will bruise His heel. And I think the idea is, in the process of stomping on the serpent's head, there's going to be a bruising to the heel of the Messiah, which is is uh, figuratively speaking worked out as Christ is crucified and thereby defeats his enemy. He stands at the... Uh, he, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Psalm 110.1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then there's this statement in Psalm 68. Psalm 68 verse 21, God will strike the heads of his enemies the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways, right? The head of the enemy is going to be wounded. And then verse 23, that you may strike your feet in their blood. So there's this head-feet thing going on in Psalm 68 and again here in Psalm 110. Do you hear what the Lord is saying? All things will be the footstool of the Messiah. He is going to reign. Jesus has been told by God the Father in heaven, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let me start with the enemies. Are you an enemy of Jesus here this morning? If you're here this morning and you are not somebody who is consciously identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus, you are not somebody who's saying, he's my king and I'm a free will offering on his behalf. If that's not you, this is your fate. The Bible is giving you fair warning of what's going to happen to you. God the Father is going to make you, the enemy of his, his Christ, a footstool for his feet. You don't want to be there. You don't have to be there. You can turn from your sin. You can repent of your rebellion against the true king of heaven and earth and you can swear allegiance to him and he will take you as his own. You can be redeemed and transformed and renewed and made right and forgiven. That's open for you. All you have to do is turn and trust. Turn and trust with all your heart and Christ will take you. Now let me, let me go from the enemies to Christians. 
this is our hope. This is our hope, and the Bible is all the time identifying us as looking forward to this day. If we ask the question, what is going to make things right? What, what is going to heal the wounds that we have? What is going to mend our brokenness? What is going to make it so that we treat each other like we ought to? This, this will. When Christ reigns, all things will be made new. That means that we're all looking to the future. You don't want to be somebody who's expecting things to be now like they're not going to be until then. Now, I don't mean, I don't mean you just accept things and, and you act like, well, this is what we can expect, so I don't expect anything to get better. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, in our longing for things to get better, we don't want to lose sight of the day that the king will reign. And we don't, want to, we don't want to forget that it's God who's going to make the enemies the footstool. It's God who's going to make all things new. So if you're a believer in Jesus, Psalm 110 verse 1, which is quoted so often in the New Testament, should be so comforting to us. The Lord says to my Lord, David says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You hear what the Lord's saying? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. The question for us is, do we believe it? Do we believe that the enemies are going to be a footstool? Notice how there are quotation marks, at least if you're looking at the ESV like I am. There are quotation marks around that first statement. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Quote before sit, quote after footstool. That's what the Lord says to David's Lord. Now David's going to respond to this. And David's response is instructive. Because what, it's like what David is going to do now after... You remember the decree in Psalm 2, verses 5 through 9? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. And now it's like the Lord's saying, I'm going to enact the decree. The nations are going to be your inheritance. All your enemies are going to be your footstool. Now after that, it's like David starts cheering on the Messiah. David says, look at verse 2, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. It's like he's celebrating what God is saying he's going to do. And, and before we go on to look at the next sort of utterance of praise and, and exhortation that David makes in response to the king, let's think about this. The Lord sends forth from Zion. Remember Psalm 2 again? Um, he who sits in the heavens laughs, and then he answers them saying, I have installed my king on Zion my holy hill, right? And then Psalm 3, when David is in distress, he cries out to the Lord and the Lord answers him from Zion, his holy hill. And so it sounds like, here in verse 2, it sounds like the Lord is enthroned on Zion and the king is now enthroned there as, at his right hand and the, the scepter, uh, the mighty scepter is being sent forth from Zion. Uh, that scepter is significant. This is not the, the same word that's used in Psalm 49.10, but you remember what that statement said about the king from Judah's line? The scepter will not depart. It's a different Hebrew word, but they're synonyms. The scepter will not depart from Judah, right? So the promise that God made to Judah's line is now being evoked. Remember Numbers 24, verse 17? A star shall arise in Israel. A scepter 
shall come from Judah. And it will, it will crush the forehead of Moab, the enemies of God's people who are cursing God's people. And then Psalm 2, not, Psalm 2 verse 9 says uh, that the Messiah is going to shatter the enemy nations with an iron rod or a scepter. And now David here is bringing all that together, I think, and saying, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. This is a statement of praise. David is praising the future king from his line, talking about what the Lord is going to do for him. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, rule in the midst of your enemies. So David is calling the Christ to reign. You know, when, when we pray for the salvation of the lost, this should be a component of it. We should be calling the Christ, calling the Messiah to reign, rule in the midst of your enemies. Everybody that doesn't know Jesus is an enemy. Everybody that doesn't worship him as king is an enemy. And what we're saying is rule over them. Establish your sovereignty over them. So I would encourage you to join David in calling the Christ to reign over his enemies. By the way, here in Psalm 110, verse 2, when David says, rule in the midst of your enemies, he uses a word from Genesis 1, 28. When, when the Bible says, when God says, he, he blessed uh, the, man that, the man and the woman that he had made, and uh, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Remember what he said next? Subdue it and let them have dominion. That, that, that phrase, it's the same Hebrew word. Have dominion in the midst of your enemies, David is saying. David is, is essentially asserting this future king from my line is going to accomplish what Adam failed to do. He's going to reign the way that Adam was charged to reign in the garden. And then he continues to celebrate the future king in verse 3. He continues to extol his Lord. Verse 3 reads in the ESV, Your people will offer themselves freely. Literally, the, the text could be translated, your people are free will offerings. You know, in the, in, the, in the Mosaic law, a free will offering was something that was not required. It was something that was not constrained. The people were not obligated to do this, right? And so what David is saying is, no obligation needs to be put upon your people. No, no draft is necessary. No command is necessary. Your people see you, and their response is, everything that I am is a free will offering for you. If I have to die in battle on your behalf, let me at them. I'm a free will offering. I think that this kind of language is behind Paul saying over in Philippians and various places, making statements like, I'm a, I'm a drink offering poured out on the sacrifice and service of your faith. It's like Paul is saying, I'm a free will offering uh, for Christ's sake, for your benefit. Your people are free will offerings. Your people will offer themselves freely. And then verse 3 says, on the day of your power. I remember years and years ago, um, Tommy Nelson uh, a guy that Denny talks about. He and I both listened to a lot of his preaching in years past. And uh, in one sermon, Tommy Nelson, I don't even remember why he was telling this illustration, but it fits here. 
He was talking about how um, Eisenhower's son uh, related uh, the, the, the time when he realized how powerful his father was. And he said that, that um, they happened to be on a balcony and the hosts of the U.S. Army were gathered outside this balcony, just rank upon rank of just masses and hordes of soldiers. And uh, Eisenhower's son talked about how the doors of this balcony were thrown open and, and General Eisenhower stepped out onto that balcony and all of those men rose to their feet and saluted. And Eisenhower's son talked about how he was just overwhelmed at the power his father wielded. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. That won't hold a candle to the hosts of heaven. That, that can't even be compared to the glory that Christ Jesus will, will hold in his hand on the day of his power. That next phrase there in verse 3, it says, in holy garments. That's the way the, the ESV renders it. But you'll notice there's a, there's a footnote on this. And down, um, let me see if I want this footnotes. This footnote. Uh, there, there's some different ways that, that uh, this is taken. Uh, I don't want the footnote. Um, uh, more literally, the phrase here, you, you could translate this in the splendors of holiness, which, which is kind of what in holy garments is trying to get at. It, it, what it's saying is that the king, it's like he's dressed in holiness. And what this means is that on the day of his power, Holiness, which is the visible, the visible manifestation of the purity and rightness of God's character. That is going to be radiating from this king. So that there's going to be no one who can gainsay him. There is going to be no one who can claim that they know where the bones are buried. There is going to be no one who can say that they know about some scandal. Absolute, utter Holiness, righteousness, purity is going to shine forth from the king in holy array or in holy garments or in the splendors of holiness. And then continuing to celebrate this king in, in poetic language, he says, from the womb of the morning. You hear, you hear what the poetry is getting at. It, it's getting at the birthplace of light. And it's evoking things like the sunrise. So it's like there's been this long night of, of sin and sadness and sorrow in the world, but from the womb of the morning, in the splendors of holiness, on the day of his power, the king is going to step forth. And all the hosts will offer themselves up like free will offerings for him. From the womb of of the morning. I think there's, it, there's something more here, not, more beyond just the joy of the sunrise, the break of day, the piercing of night's darkness with the stabbing light of hope. In light of what comes to be known about the future king from David's line, eternal connotations might attach themselves to the fact that the splendors of the king's holiness originate from the womb of the dawn the place where light was gestated, right? In the beginning, light broke forth from the womb of the dawn, and that's where this king comes from. I think it's, it's very subtly perhaps hinting that this king was there when the light began. 
Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. I don't think we feel the force of, of references to dew in our culture because our, cult, our, our, our climate is not as arid as, this, as the climate from which David writes. Uh, years ago, Jill, in the year 2000, summer of 2000, Jill and I got to go to the land of Israel and in various places, they actually endeavor to capture the dew because rainfall is so scarce. If they don't capture the dew in various ways, you know, they got these schemes set up where they're going to they're, they're gonna get it to drain off some surface into some sort of channel and then they can filter it and they can actually use this water for various things. And it's the only opportunity they get to have water because it doesn't rain very often. Dew is essential to life. And dew, of course, accompanies the morning, doesn't it? The dew of your youth. Uh, the older I get, the more I notice how unwrinkled younger people are. How strong and healthy they look. So, so this, this seems to connote the dew. It, it, it connotes this, this new morning, new day hope. And then the, the youth seems also to, to point to the unwrinkled and unsmirched by the vagaries of age that, that, that comes along with renewed life. So you've got new day, you've got new life, you've got new strength. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So David is just celebrating the power and glory of the future king from his line in verses 2 and 3. After, verse 1, the king installed, uh, the Lord, I'm sorry, installed the king at his right hand to reign. So think about what's happened here. Verse 1, the king is installed, enthroned at the father's right hand. Verses, verse 2, it, it's, it's like David is authorizing the king to reign. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And then verse 3, there's this reference to the day of your power. That brings us in verse 4 to the second statement from the Lord. And um, those of you who are familiar with the way that I think many of the Psalms are organized won't be surprised to think or to, to, to hear me say that I think verse 4 is the center of this chiastic structure of this psalm. So just to walk, since we just walked through verses 1 through 3, let's just briefly... Verse 4 is right in the middle. Look at verse 5, how he's got a reference to the day of his wrath. So on either side of verse 4, you've got days. Day of power in verse 3, day of wrath in verse 5. You've got the king authorized to reign in verse 2, and then he executes... His reign in verse 6. He will execute judgment among the nations. So he, he visits his authority upon his enemies. And then in verse 1, he's installed as king to reign. And in verse 7, his head is raised up as he's refreshed by the water from the way. And we'll, we'll come back to that when we, when we look more closely at that verse. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. I would invite you to turn on your biblical antennae, and think to yourself, when else in the Bible has the Lord sworn and not changed his mind? Well, he made these promises to Abraham, right? 
Genesis 12, he tells Abraham what he's going to do for him. Genesis 15, it's only God who goes between the pieces of that that animal that was divided in two in the process of that covenant-making ceremony. And then in Genesis 22, the Lord actually comes right out and says to, uh, to Abraham, I have sworn to you by myself. And what he's saying is, this is not changing. I have made this oath, I have taken this oath, and, and it's not going to change. And then Numbers 23, 19, maybe some of you have that, that verse memorized, uh, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. And that statement is made about the promises to Abraham. Okay? So when else did the Lord swear, and not well, in the covenant to Abraham, didn't he? You see what I'm driving at, I hope. I think David is saying the promises that God is making to the future king from my line are like the promises that God has made to Abraham. And then to to reinforce that, he's going to pick up this reference to Melchizedek here in a second, who interacted with Abraham. And David knows where the line of priests comes from, right? David knows who the priests are in the Mosaic Covenant. It's the line of Levi. Why is David leaving them out? Because the future king is going to be a priest, but he's not going to be a Levitical priest. Okay? He's going to be a priest like Melchizedek, who's both king and priest, who's associated with Abraham. And this king is going to bring about the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Do you remember what the Lord said to David through the prophet Nathan? I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, right? Very similar language here in the Hebrew of of those two texts. So the Lord has said to the the descendant of David, you're going to reign forever. And now Psalm 110 verse 4, you're going to be priest forever. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Notice again, quotation marks around that statement. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If we had time, uh, I would love to walk through the book of Hebrews and look at the way that the author of Hebrews develops and interprets all the realities of this. And, and, And here's what I would want to show. Moses recorded these things in Genesis. David has interpreted Moses in keeping with Moses' intentions in Psalm 110, and then Jesus interprets these things in keeping with the intentions of of Moses and David, and then Peter does the same thing, and then the author of Hebrews, there's there's an organic development. It's not disconnected. The author of Hebrews is not making things up. He's reading the Old Testament and interpreting it rightly. I'd love to take the time to go through that, but I won't I won't belabor our our time here this morning. I want to work through the rest of this psalm. We sang about this earlier. Here's here's our application. Okay, application from verses 1 through 3. Be a free will offering. I mean, I tried to, hopefully that was clear, but I just want to make it explicit, right? You are a free will offering. Do you know what matters? Jesus matters. Our lives, in comparison with Jesus, don't matter. Our phones don't matter. Uh, yesterday, I am such a sinner. Um, we're driving back um, from, from Jill's parents yesterday, and um, I, I like for my ice in my cup to get to a certain point where it's just right to be chewed. It's not too hard. It's not too soft. And, and, and so you, you sort of have to let the ice melt in the water for a while. 
And my wife picked up my cup to eat some of my ice, and I rebuked her. I am such a wretched sinner. She matters so much more than that silly cup of ice. And, and, and we're just constant failures, aren't we? But we, what we need to do is we need to embrace our role as free will offerings. We don't matter. What matters is Jesus. He's the one that counts. We live for him. Application number one. Application number two. We sang about this earlier. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. I, I love the way that Revelation chapter 12 gets at this. It ta- having talked about what Jesus did when he was born and, and, and lived and so forth and, and died and rose, it then says that because of the conquest of the Lord Jesus through his death and resurrection, Revelation 12 verse 10 says, the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. Satan has been expelled from heaven. He is kicked out of the courtroom, which means he has no more standing to accuse the people that belong to Jesus. The great high priest, his work is so effective that there is, there is no place for false guilt or if you're trusting in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't make amends. I'm not saying that you shouldn't press forward in holiness and, and try to do better and feel... Um, there is no place for lingering guilt because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are a priest forever, David says, after the order of Melchizedek. And then again, just like he did after the first declaration, David celebrates the future king from his line in verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. 109.31, he stands at the right hand of the needy one. It's remarkable, isn't it, how God can make it so that Jesus is both the needy one who gets himself crucified and the almighty Lord whom nobody can overcome. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. You've got, you've got the all-powerful hero, the champion, who is simultaneously the underdog. It, it's amazing how the Lord pulls these things together. The Lord is at your right hand. He will, he, the Lord, notice, notice how, um, and, and it, it, we, I could go into this, but it, what he's saying is God is at the Messiah's right hand and God will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Verse 6, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter, and then the ESV renders this next word, chiefs. But look at the footnote. I like this footnote. I didn't like the earlier one. I like this footnote. Footnote 4, if, you're, if your text is like mine, says, or the head. He will shatter the head over the wide earth. And, and, and what he's saying is th- there are... There are all these people that are aligned with Satan, these these kings, Psalm 2, right? The kings have gathered together against the Lord and his anointed, and the Lord's going to shatter them. And then there's this one arch enemy, Satan himself, the serpent, and his head is going to be crushed. This is an interpretation of Genesis 3.15. The serpent is going to have his head crushed by the future king from the line of David. That's what's being said here. And then verse 7, I don't know about you. But uh, verse 7 has always been puzzling to me. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Let me, let me just make a couple of observations here. Let's start with the word head. Um, the head in verse 6 got shattered, which by the way, notice how uh, the kings in verse 5 are shattered. And then the head, the individual 
uh, arch enemy is shattered in verse 6. Uh, so, he, so the head of the enemy is shattered in verse 6. The head of the Messiah in verse 7 is lifted up. Okay, so there's obviously a contrast there. But then think about verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the way. I think the way that we need to interpret this is in light of what earlier psalms have said. And I would invite you to think about Psalm 1, verse 3. Blessed is the man who doesn't do these things, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water. And then a few, few statements later in that psalm, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now you've got this man who's like a tree planted by streams of water. And he drinks from that brook by the way and he lifts up his head. And it's like, it's, I think it's like David is saying, whatever he does prospers. His leaf will not wither. He will bear fruit in season. This is the blessed man. Jesus is the king. And he is going to come and he is going to make all things new. Let me, just, let me just note one thing about Hebrews chapter 7, verse 28. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, Psalm 110, verse 4, which came later than the law, appoints a son. Where'd that come from? That's 2 Samuel 7. What the, what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's saying Psalm 110, verse 4 is to be read with uh, 2 Samuel ver chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. I will raise up your seed after you. He will be a son to me. The word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And we're all going to be like Faramir. I want to read to you a little bit about what happened when Aragorn came in. Uh, Aragorn comes in and he kneels beside Faramir, and while they're going to get this herb or herb that, um, that he has asked for, this king's foil, uh, Tolkien writes, Now Aragorn knelt beside Faramir and held a hand upon his brow, and those that watched felt that some great struggle was going on. For Aragorn's face grew gray with weariness, and ever and anon he called the name of Faramir. But each time more faintly to their hearing, as if Aragorn himself was removed from them and walked afar in some dark veil, calling for one that was lost. And then they, they come in with the king's foil and, and taking two leaves, Aragorn laid them on his hands and breathed on them. And then he crushed them. And straightway a living freshness filled the room as if the air itself awoke and tingled, sparkling with joy. And then he cast the leaves into the bowls of steaming water that were brought to him, and at once all hearts were lightened. For the fragrance that came to each was like a memory of dewy mornings, of unshadowed sun, in some land of which the fair world in spring is itself but a fleeting memory. Sounds like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? And then uh, a little bit later, suddenly... Faramir stirred, and he opened his eyes, and he looked on Aragorn, who bent over him. And a light of knowledge and love was kindled in his eyes, and he spoke softly, My Lord, you called me, I come. 
What does the king command? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would make us so confident that your great high priest has done his work with no flaw so that there is no sin that remains by which we might be accused. Lord, make us so confident in the gospel that we are ready to be free will offerings. And Lord, we ask that you would leaven that through every aspect of our lives. Make us people who forget ourselves. Make us people who don't talk about ourselves all the time or even think about ourselves all the time. Make us people who are so utterly devoted to Jesus, so concerned with the King. And Lord, we pray that you would bring this about by revealing to Him to us in ever deeper ways and cause us to say to Him, what does the King command? We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.